Thank you for tuning in to How to Work in Fashion, the podcast interviewing fashion professionals on their journey in the industry. And I'm your host, Danielle Walton. Before jumping into this episode, be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. That allows for me to continue to grow this podcast and also leave a review. If you know of someone who would love to hear more about the behind the scenes of the fashion industry, simply share this episode. And to keep up with us between episodes, follow at How to Work in Fashion on Instagram and I'm at Danielle Walton. If you want more information about today's guests and the things mentioned in this episode, it can be found in the show notes for further links and information. Really quickly, I want to share an amazing opportunity with you. If you're tuned into this podcast because you've always dreamt of working in the fashion industry, today is the day to take the next step to make that dream a reality. Now you can sign up for the free How to Work in Fashion Masterclass, teaching you five steps to jumpstart your fashion career. During this class, you will learn how I was able to start my fashion career without relocating to a major fashion capital, without a four-year degree or studying fashion, without any industry inside connections, and without a closet full of designer clothes to look the part. Spots are extremely limited and are first come first serve. You can find the link to register in today's show notes or head over to howtoworkinfashion.com to register there. Now is the time to stop waiting for the perfect opportunity to fall in your lap and to take the first step to creating the life you truly want. Sign up for the free How to Work in Fashion Masterclass today. Today's guest is Tiffany Cole Allen. She has had an extensive career as a technical designer specializing in lingerie. And yep, you guessed it, she's worked for one of the biggest lingerie brands, Victoria's Secret, perfecting the fit of their most expensive pieces and runway styles. Let's hear how she started her successful career. Okay. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome to How to Work in Fashion. Thank you so much for being a guest on our show. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Of course, I definitely wanted to interview you. Um, When I was putting everything together for this show, I thought you would be the perfect person. So thank you so much for agreeing to be on the show. Thank you. I'm very excited about being a part of this. Yes. Okay. So um, briefly, just let everyone know um, what it is you're currently doing and then kind of go into your background as to how you got into fashion. Currently, I am a senior technical lead for an intimate apparel company called Gail Mart. Um, I oversee, uh, at the moment, two individuals and nine brands on the technical design team. So technical design is basically the engineer of the garment. Um, You have designers who come up with concepts. And the technical designers are responsible for the fit of those garments, um, fitting them on live models, making sure that they fit properly, that they're balanced, um, pattern corrections, graded specs to send to the factories overseas, um, and then making sure that quality is up to par, that um, quality standards are put in place so that the product is consistent throughout the entire brand. And just basically anything that would prevent a customer or anything that would make a customer 
want to return an item or say, I don't like this. It doesn't fit good. It doesn't make me feel good. The quality is bad. We try to address before a product reaches the store so that those things don't happen and customers buy the product and they love it and they feel good in it and they come back and buy more. I love it, man. That, I mean, you would think that, you know, somebody just comes up with a design and then boom, it's, it's in the stores. But um, there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes, I'm guessing. Yes, there is a whole supply chain that is involved in getting designs from on a piece of paper to actual product in the store that can be worn by multiple sizes of people and multiple body shapes. Um, so technical design is a very in- important part of that whole process because we touch everything. Um, I touched raw materials. I connect with my raw, mater- raw materials team to make sure that the fabrics that are coming in on my samples is correct. If there's any issue in the stretch of the fabric, I have to be able to address that in the fit. Um, I work with all of the factories overseas and vendors overseas. So I have my hands in that as well. I work with keeping the cost down to make sure that we're staying within the cost parameter to make sure to ensure that we are making money off of the product that we're making. Right. Because it, it costs to make these things, but you have to make sure that you're making a profit off of what you're spending. So um, my job is to make sure that we're keeping costs down through uh, the type of construction that we're doing or uh, finishes that we're doing, trims that we're using, but also not compromising the integrity of the garment to keep that cost down. So it's a lot of balance and moving pieces around on the chessboard to figure out the best way to get the product there at the right time in the right quality for the right price to make a customer want to continue to buy from your brand. Mm, Interesting. Okay. So rewind. Um, Is this something that you initially set out to get into? Um, Did you kind of just fall into technical design? Give us like the backstory. So I did, I did just fall into technical design actually. Um, I knew I wanted to go to school for fashion, but in my mind, I always imagined that I wanted to be a buyer, which a buyer is basically the person that comes and says, comes to like a buyer would come to my job and say, okay, these are the designs I love from the brand. I want to put those in my store. Give me all of those. And then they'll place orders. And then that's when it comes to me as the technical designer of, okay, now we have this actual product that needs to be made you have to work with the factories and all of your other counterparts to make it. Mm -hmm. So I originally was on the other side of things in my mind. I wanted to be a buyer. So that was my first associate's degree was in merchandising. And then as I got to going to fashion school and finding out about about multiple careers that are (laughs) available in the industry, I mean, there's a magnitude of careers that are available Mm -hmm. Uh, Other things started to pique my interest. So I switched my major after my associates going into my bachelor's degree into production management. So that's the other side of what I do, which is my production person who does the costing. She works with the fabric. She's ordering the trim. She's making sure that the quality of all of those things are that they're what I need so that my product is right. Um, but I know her job as well because that's what I studied. So it helps me be a stronger technical designer. 
Um, technical design wasn't even on my radar because it's a fairly new um, career in terms of all of the other careers within fashion. Um, for instance, the school I went to, the Fashion Institute of Technology, they didn't even have a technical design degree program when I attended 10 years ago. So that shows you, you know, how far technical design has come. Now they have a whole bachelor degree program for technical design. So before, um, like who was handling all those details, do you think? So before, in the beginning, before most production shifted to China, um, there were vendors and factories in the U.S. that had people that, you know, pattern makers that worked and knew those skills that were needed for a technical designer. Um, And then things shifted to China. So designers were basically being asked to do technical things and give corrections and things to factories. And um, out of that was born a technical designer. So, you know, you realize that a designer is creative and a technical designer is more analytical, but you had, there has to be a common balance between the two to be a really good technical designer. So um, I've always had that creative side, but I also like the business aspect of it and figuring out how to put all the pieces together and make it work and come together and be flawless and seamless. So um, that ended up being a perfect fit for me because I've always loved puzzles. I've always loved solving problems. And now that's basically all I do. But I still get to be creative and and, um, help my designer come to a design that is fashionable and speaks to the the trends that are going on right now. So I still get to tap into my creativity a little bit, but just not so much because I like being creative, but I don't want to be a designer. So Okay, so tell me, um, in your opinion, how big of a role did your education play? in your career? Um, my education played a huge part of my career. I think fashion is more of like a trade as opposed to, you know, some other majors that you may go into in school. So you don't necessarily need to go as far as a master's degree or it, it just, you don't need all of that extensive education to be able to become successful in the business. Um, because it's more of an experience-based business. Like your experience speaks for itself. And if you have, you know, the connections and the people who have seen your work and know your quality of work, they will recommend you for jobs. So I feel like my education played a huge part in getting my foot in the door, but I don't think that it's necessary for me to go any further into education because I've already gained, you know, about 14 years of experience under my belt. So at this point, I'm considered an expert in my field. I no longer need to go back to school to study anything else. Come on, credentials. Yes, vet. (laughs) (laughs) We talking to a vet in the game, (laughs) y'all. Sometimes it don't feel like it, but I have to take a step back sometimes and like say like, wow, you really have been doing this for like over a decade 
Um, yeah, that's huge. Yes, it is. That so, is huge. And sometimes, you know, you always want to learn more and and you always seek more knowledge yourself so you don't feel like you've come that far, but then you get to thinking about it and you're like, no, actually I have a lot of knowledge and experience under my belt. So yeah. yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, we were just talking about that before um, that you really don't see how much you've done and how really successful you are until you really kind of look back. Like once you come out of it on the other side and you're like, no, I actually did a lot or I'm doing a lot or I have a lot of experience. So yes. yeah. And then specifically in this industry too, because um, you're working alongside people who've been doing this for 40 years or, you know, 50 years and they're executive level. And you're like, oh gosh, I have so far to go. <laughs> I have so much to learn and so much to do that you don't even take a step back and say, oh yeah, you know, I'm almost 15 years in. I have a significant amount of experience and knowledge to contribute as well. It's just in this industry, it's it's hard to say, uh, yeah, I'm experienced. I know because you're always made to feel like, actually, no, you don't know yet. Right, exactly. <laughs> alongside people who've been doing this and have seen the transition from things being made in the U.S. to now they're in China and now we're going to India and now we're going to Philippines. So they've seen this whole transition all the way through. And when they start talking about how things used to be and what used to be and what, you know, you have no frame of reference because when they were doing that, I was somewhere, you know, in Flint, probably <laughs> right. in the cheerleading skirt. Or <laughs> exactly. You know, the amount of years of experience they have exceeds my age. So right. even, you know, as a kid, I'm somewhere running around and people are already in this industry working. Yeah, and now absolutely. I'm here working alongside of those same people. So, um, you know, it's you humble yourself a lot, but then in the midst of humbling yourself, you also forget that you can pat yourself on the back a little bit and celebrate how far you've come. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, and speaking of Flint, um, do you think? I know you grew up in Flint as well as I. Do you think growing up in the Midwest um, helped or hindered your career path? I could probably say a little bit of both, maybe. Mm -hmm. I think it hindered me in a sense of I didn't get exposure early enough to the fashion industry that I could have gotten if I was in a place like L.A. or New York. You know, New York has a fashion industries high school, so... Mm -hmm. um, well, middle and high school. So kids are being introduced to the industry. They're being introduced to industry professionals and big wigs at the age of 12 and 13, you know, and I just, I, I didn't have that exposure and people that come from places like us don't often don't get that exposure. So that was a hindrance in the sense of when it was time for me to come to fashion school, I had no idea what I could be doing or which path I could be going in. And um, I think that that prolonged the amount of experience and work I had to do to be able to get to the point where I am today. Right. Um, so how do you think it was a help? I think it helped because I have a different perspective of the, the main people who are buying my product. You know, there's times when I've, 
when I've worked on products like Walmart brands or Kmart brands, and these are stores that don't necessarily exist in New York City. You have people in meeting rooms and they're saying, well, you know, what do people in the Midwest know about fashion? <laughs> what they want to buy. We tell them what to buy. And I'm like, yeah, you know, I'm from the Midwest. Hey, hi. <laughs> My opinion matters here. We know a little bit of something about fashion and we actually do know what we like. And we actually, you know, do go to the store and buy the things that we like and we don't buy the things we don't like. So, yeah. you know, we're not just brainless. We're not just like some hillbillies out in the country somewhere like we, exactly. we have access to information and resources too maybe not on the same scale as someone born and raised in new york but we do have fashion sense and you should cater to us because we support your brands because clearly you don't have these stores in new york so right not the one that's supporting your brands it's the people that are in the midwest and the middle belt and in the south and mm-hmm. um I think it helps me to understand what my customers need and what they look for. And also just in body types, because, um, you know, there's always this impression that Midwesterners are larger people that, you know, so I have to kind of in fittings remind people that, you know, we have to fit for all body shapes, all sizes, because you're, you're, your idea or conception is incorrect. Yeah, absolutely. I always say New York is kind of like a bubble. Like, yes, they don't know what's happening outside of New York. (laughs) Exactly. And if you talk to a New Yorker, you will see that that is how they think, you know, a lot of times, not all the time, Mm -hmm. but in a lot of cases I have heard people say, Oh, you know, this New York is, you can't go, you can't get, there's nothing you can get anywhere else that you can't get in New York. And I'm like, actually, there is. <laughs> actually, I can get a four bedroom house. <laughs> I would like a Verner's like right now. <laughs> I have one day, but you know, like there's things that exist outside of this place that, you know, people that are from here or haven't been anywhere else, they don't know about. So that limits their view of, uh, customer behavior and shopping patterns and things like that. But because I essentially was a Walmart co- customer at one point or a Kmart customer at one point, or even if I wasn't, I know someone who was, or I have family who was, or it still is. And I'm making sure that the product that I'm putting out there is, I, I look at it as my friends and my family are buying this. Because one, I'm going to ask them to support any brand that I work for because I believe in the products that I work on. And two, because I know that they are the ones that are buying them. And I want it to be something that's going to be good for them. Absolutely. That is how being from the Midwest has helped me or being from Flint has helped me because I'm able to be reminded of the people who are supporting the brands and cater to them as opposed to catering to the profit margin. Mm, That's good. Okay. So I know currently um, you work for the, and correct me if I'm wrong, but the company that you work for um, does private label, correct? Yes, we do. And private label. So um, Walmart, JCPenney, um, Primark, Amazon, QVC, 
And then we have private label um, French Connection, uh, Lively, which is like um, kind of like a social media online brand. I also do some men's underwear now. So um, that's also new territory for me as well in this company. Nice. And and kind of give us a history of um, some of the other brands you worked for as well. So I've mainly been in intimates my entire career, intimates and sleepwear. I've worked for Victoria's Secret and done many, many, many designs for them as far as for their Dream Angels brand, for um, what used to be Darling, but that ended up going away while I was there. And then their designer collection, which is their premium um, high-end collection that they have. Before Victoria's Secret, I did a Material Girl for Macy's, which is Madonna's brand. And then I did Walmart, also there. And um, after Victoria's Secret, I did Betsy Johnson. And then from Betsy Johnson did Dillard's, which was um, their private labels that they have. So... I've been intimates focused with uh, sleepwear and loungewear as well. And that's so interesting because, you know, as a shopper, you wouldn't think that, you know, one company would be handling all of the designs and technical designs for several different brands. But um, that's pretty common in the industry, right? Yes. So you have a vendor level and then you have a retail level. And I've worked on both. Victoria's Secret would be considered a retail level. And then where I am now is considered a vendor. So vendors basically um, support multiple brands. And your brand is basically outsourcing the work that they would be hiring a whole team to do. So, for instance, French Connection, they may have designers and technical designers but for whatever reason, choose to source out a certain part of or amount or percentage of their product to vendors for the vendors to handle. So then me as a vendor, we have our own whole entire production team, which includes designers, technical designers, production people, a China team. And we basically own all of the designs and everything, but we sell them to French Connection and French Connection puts them in their stores. And then we also sell off price to TJ Maxx. So, Mm. um, which is a whole nother monster that, you know, you kind of just think that TJ Maxx or stores like that gets, you know, just whatever doesn't sell. But Mm -hmm. I learned when I was in New York that, you know, there are whole divisions in companies, in Ralph Lauren's and, you know, other brands that are dedicated just to making items for those types of stores. Yes. And that's what we call off price. Mm-hmm. So anything off price, they are their own designs, you know, like TJ Maxx will get specific designs. Even for Betsy Johnson, I did off price, mm-hmm. did specific designs that were just for TJ Maxx. And then we had, the designs that were for like a Nordstrom's or Dillard's or Amazon, you know, each one mm-hmm. got its own level of design. So you can tell, you know, when you go to TJ Maxx, people will be like, oh, that's the off season stuff. Like, yes, some of it may be off season stuff, but for the most part, at this point, 
brands are investing in creating off-price styles and putting them in stores like TJ Maxx or Marshall mm-hmm. or something like that because it's still pretty lucrative and they don't have to worry about, you know, moving units from one place to the other. It's already going there directly. Interesting. It's so the industry, I mean, <clears throat> once you dive into it, it's so much, oh my God. you know, it's so, so many <laughs> so layers much to it. To it. I tell people that all yeah. the time, like, you know, you get many up and coming designers who are doing really well for the level of where their brand is, but they have no concept of what is going what it's going to entail to get it to a mass market level. Mm-hmm. I think that's important for them to know because I don't think anybody goes into entrepreneurship or designing their own brand to say, oh, I only want to be able to sell 200 units. <laughs> you know, like you go into this with the hope of becoming a major brand that is a household name one day. And if you want to do that, then you have to gain the knowledge that comes with create turning your brand from a, you know, a smaller scale into something that's mass market and known nationwide. Um, because there is many, 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 many layers to what we do every day. And there are a lot of people involved. There's a lot of hands that go in the pot to make it come out right. And I, I, I think that people don't know that. Even people that are, you know, creating uh, creating their own brands, they have no idea. So Kanye kind of had a point when he was going on his rants <laughs> <laughs> about the fashion industry. Because, I mean, on one hand, it's like, yeah, you have a lot of money. You probably can make something happen. But on the other hand, it is so many moving parts and so mm-hmm. many, like you said, layers to it that only so many people are privy to getting access to yeah. um to where I kind of I kind of felt them though but <laughs> um talk to us about designing for um Victoria's Secret I know you had a bunch of designs in their actual runway show so how was that process and at what point did you feel like extremely proud of yourself and like oh I've kind of made it You know, I didn't even, because I I had stuff show every year that I worked there, which was three years. So the first year, I think I probably had like four or five designs in the show. By my last year there, pretty much every design in the show was one of mine. Wow. I, you know, each one was a different, a different level of like, wow, I, I, I surpassed that feeling again, like... You know, so because each each year I had more and more being placed and I did the the backstage rap or role for mm. all of those years. You don't wow. know when you're working that this stuff is going to be in the fashion show or what's going to be picked for the fashion show. So I wasn't even in the mindset of let me do my best because some of this may get put in the fashion show. I was just excited to be at Victoria's Secret, honestly. Because that was the name that I needed. And on top of that, I was learning an abundance of information. And that's all I really cared about. So 
I was already like, oh gosh, like I really made it. I even turned down a job that was a higher title to take the job at VS so that, you know, I could get that learning. Um, But I think the first time I was like, oh, wow, was when I seen one of my styles in the catalog, in the VS catalog. Oh my God, it looks so pretty. Mm. Like, you know, I was used to seeing my stuff because before that I was with a vendor. So I was used to seeing my stuff only in the stores. And I would go to the stores myself and check it and make sure it was right, make sure the factories follow what I told them to follow, make sure it looks good. If there's any issues that I see, then I can go back and call them out. But it was more so for a check for myself. But to see it like an actual print on, you know, one of the Victoria's Secret Angel models, like it was like, wow, like this is my work. Like I remember what it looked like when it came to me and it didn't look anything like this. You know, like I really did this and made this look beautiful. And uh, that was the moment when I felt really proud. But then the fashion show was just like icing on the cake. So yeah. After that, you know, each year just got better and better because I had more fashion forward styles. I was doing, I had started doing designer collection, which was more high end and it was really fashion forward. You know, we were working with like Parisian laces and things like that. So it was very high end and the, the fashion of it was fashion forward. So with designer collection, basically all of the lower tier collections like Dream Angels and Darling and Very Sexy then followed suit. So whatever came out on trend for designer collection for the spring of whatever year, by the next spring, the other lower tiers would be designing into that same trend. So everything I was doing with designer collection was like, mm-hmm. it was, that was special to me because it was like, it's, it truly spoke to my level of creativity and my technical skill. Yeah, and you were setting the bar for the rest of the company, pretty much. I was very happy about that. And at within a year of me taking over Designer Collection, it turned a profit of a million dollars, which it hadn't done in the five years of its existence. Come on, yes. Yes, so I was like, <laughs> I found that out and they told me that I was so happy. Like, I was just like, wow, that is amazing because... A lot of times as a technical designer, you only hear about the problems. You only hear about the problems because, I mean, that's what you're supposed to do, solve the problems, right? So, you know, I could make a line every season that comes out and it's perfect and the quality is great and the customers love it and, oh, my God, it's flying off the racks. And then one season, one style could have issues or problems, and I'm going to hear about that before I ever hear about the other seasons. Mm, and that's yeah. just the nature of the position that I'm in, right? So I'm not used to hearing, oh, your brand is doing exceptionally well. We've turned a profit for the first time. Like, And to hear that, I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Like to know that I contributed to that. Man, that's huge. Okay. So I just want to talk about, okay, you've worked like as a vendor and then like you said for the designer collection at VS and there's a huge you know range between the two um and I always stress to people that you know it doesn't really matter I know the fashion industry tries to like glamorize 
you know, high-end designer brands, but I know like the Walmart brands, they making just as much money, <laughs> if not more, probably um, cranking out those low price items. So do you think people shouldn't get caught up in the hype of, you know, the name of a company or? Um, Absolutely, they should not, because <laughs> the top three retailers right now are Walmart, Amazon and QVC. They are the top three retailers wow. right now. And Amazon carries high end and they also carry very low end. But that the money in mass mark in the mass market is in the low end. That's what people are buying and they're not returning that. You know, if it's not you know, we we make three ninety eight bras for Walmart, three dollars and ninety eight cents. A person that buys a $4 bra is not going to come back and say, oh, I didn't like this. It didn't fit right. But a person who buys a $50 bra, they're definitely going to come back and say, I didn't like this. It didn't fit right. And they're going to retire. So automatically, the customer mindset is different. So you're not going to have as many losses as you would have for a higher end brand. And that's so important. And I've seen that. Even working for Saks um, in Neiman Marcus, you know, you got every high-end designer you can think of in there, but people were, one, waiting for a sale, two, Mm -hmm. returning, three, you know, not making their money. It was such a, it was more of a psychological game as far as buying um, with like fast fashion or, you know, something at a lower price point. It's kind of mindless. Like you just like, oh yeah, this is cheap. Let me grab this. And then, you know, right. it's sold. And that's, you know. You get a few wears out of it and you're okay if it falls apart after that because you didn't spend that much money on it. You know what I mean? Right. Absolutely. And, I- and to me, if you know, for people wanting to get into the industry, I mean, you know, if your design if you go into design or wherever you are, like to me, more people, you know, Forever Twenty One is a more household name than um, you know, rag and bone. You know, everybody doesn't know what Rag and Bone is or where to get it or, you know, it's not even sold everywhere. So, you know, I feel like if you get into like, say, if you get into corporate or you're a vendor for a Forever 21 or H&M or something like that, um, I just don't want people to think like there's a, a hierarchy. Obviously, like, you know, you look at it that way because of the price point and because, you know, something is considered designer. But one, those brands are making just as much money <laughs> and, you know, they're hiring and you get that experience and you get the gratification of seeing your your work everywhere. Right. Right. And I mean, look at designers themselves. They don't have just one tier. You know, Ralph Lauren has purple label. He has, you know, Ralph by Ralph Lauren. He has Lauren like he has many different levels of he has polo. You know, and people would swear that polo is the best, but really in the grand scheme of things, it's the lowest level of product at Ralph Lauren. Yes. You can't really base anything off of a name brand anymore because even designers know, you know, mass market makes the most money, which is why they separate the two. They have their high end to cater to the high end customers and they have the mass market to cater to everybody. Because even people that buy high end buy mass market. Yeah. But and I see that mass market doesn't buy high end. So and they know that. So that's why they create these other low tier brands to cater to 
all markets. And that, right. that's where the money is. What advice would you give to someone who's interested in getting into the industry now? Uh, I would, I would give them the advice of always networking and having a network. Um, because you, you think, you know, but you have no idea. (laughs) It's not until you get to a point where you need the information that you're like, shoot, I should have kept in contact with that person or I should have, you know, I should have, I should have kept their information so that I could reach out because now you need them to help you or you need their, them as a resource. Um, right. And it's okay with needing people as resources because that is, that's, this industry is built on resources. You share and we share information. Other people share information with us. This industry is built on resources. People go from job to job and they come with knowledge and resources, you know, so factory information, uh, treat like construct different ways of construction and things like that. Like that's your knowledge. You take that with you with the experience that you gain. So this is all built on resources. So it's okay to say, you know, I'm going to keep this person and I'm going to keep in contact with this person and I'm going to keep them as part of my network because I know eventually down the line, I may need their expertise at some point. Right. I think that the new generation, they are, they are so disconnected mostly because of social media, but um, they're just disconnected from, even sending emails to check in or to say, Hey, you know, I'm still doing this or doing that. You know, um, you have any advice for me? Do you have any internships? Do you have it just being, just being the one to reach out and be the go getter. And yeah. And people don't, people don't shun that. Like, I think people are afraid that, Oh, I don't want to bother. I don't want to be a burden or a bother, but most of the time you're not and people don't mind that exactly and i've struggled with this myself which is why i'm able to give this advice because i myself has have missed opportunities by not keeping my network tight and um i just i hope that the newer generation gets better with that because i feel like it's getting worse and worse as as more as i see more like interns come in and and college students that I mentor and things like that, like it's just um, kind of a disconnect there. And your network in this industry is so important because even though you may not need them now, you will probably need them five, 10 years from now and you won't know it. You know, like I actually had a designer email me, uh, text me, one of my old designers text me yesterday and asked me, oh, do you remember that foam pad supplier that we used to use for our cut and sew pads. And I'm like, <laughs> absolutely not. I don't, but then I'm kind of kicking myself like, God, I could use that information right now. Why didn't I keep it? <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? So mm-hmm. me and her both are like, dang, we should have been, you know, keeping better track of that information. So get a, get a book, get a, you you have your phone all the time, you know, make notes, just keep track. 
of information because you never know when you're going to need it again or need that person again or those people. So also um, just try to work while you're in college. Try to work in the industry while you're in college. Internships, even if it's like you meet someone in the industry and you're like, I'll come work at your office for free for a month or whatever, you know, just to get that exposure and get that experience. Because the one thing that helped me the most was the fact that I worked all while I was in school. Mm -hmm. So by the time that I graduated, I was able to negotiate a higher salary. I was, I knew things um, that I wouldn't have known if I didn't work while I was in school. Um, And it's going, and you're going to learn, you know, you're going to have what's going on in your classes is going to be going on in real life. And you're going to be able to understand things better because you're, you're working in the job and you see what they're talking about. Cause there will be plenty of times I will go to class and I'm like, Oh, now it all makes sense. You know, cause I'm doing the same thing throughout the day. And at work, I'm like, what in the world? And the class, And it's explained to me even further. And I'm like, okay, now it all makes sense. So good. Okay. So thank you so much. How can people um, connect with you after this episode? Email me at fashioningfocus at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. This, I mean, I'm sure so many people are taking notes because <laughs> you laid it out as far as what it all entails to really, um, you know, bring a, a collection to life. So thank you so much for sharing. And I appreciate you coming on the podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me and and even thinking of me and considering me for this. Oh, no problem. I always jump at the opportunity to share my knowledge with everybody because it may be someone listening somewhere that, you know, was like I was at 17 years old, wanting to be in the industry, but not really knowing how. So um, I, I will always share, share knowledge and information to help someone else get put on. And I so appreciate that. Yes. Thank you so much. All right, guys, that is it for this episode. And I will talk to you all next week.